I I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11 as we continue our way through the Psalter and trying to consider at least least one psalm a month. I recognize it's now December and I'm in Psalm 11, so I might have to play catch up uh, and do Psalm 12 next week uh, because we've got a good 14, 15 years ahead of us if we want to make it through the whole Psalter. Um, But it's good. We always need to have this before us. This is Uh, The songbook for Christ's church, given for us uh, to grant us uh, the wisdom to even know how to pray, even when we don't know what to pray, even when the foundations of society have been overturned, the Lord leads us in His righteousness and shows us the way in which we are to walk. Psalm chapter 11, to the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals upon the wicked, fire and sulfur, scorching wind. They shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord and ask, Uh, that he would lead us to understand what is going on in this uh, short psalm. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. How even when we don't understand what your word means, we thank you that you have given it to us and ask that you would give us trusting hearts, uh, that we would take the time to assess and to lean in and embrace these things that you teach us. So that with the eyes of faith, we would walk the path of righteousness. Illuminate our minds and our hearts to know what your word says, that we might believe and do the things you have called us to believe and to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin uh, this evening by reading a letter written uh, somewhat recently by a preacher in Boston. And he writes this. So is there ever an age when there has been so little sense of the evil of sin and so little love to God, so little heavenly-mindedness, so little holiness of life among the professors of true religion? I say it was somewhat recently. It was actually written in 1742 by Jonathan Edwards. It seems as though the church has to confront the same problems in every generation. What are the righteousness what are the righteous to do when so much unrighteousness abounds? We need to think of events going on in the news even over the past week, as many of us I think are aware of the Supreme Court's hearing regarding the status, uh, the legal status of abortion in the United States. For 50 years, over 62 million lives snuffed out of existence. 
In doctors' offices and hospitals, it's 15 times the size of the population of Oregon. Ten times the number of lives of those murdered in Hitler's death camps. State-sanctioned. What are the righteous to do? What is the church to do when the nation legislates wickedness, heinous wickedness, laws that flagrantly violate the natural moral order? We read the Psalms and we think, we have to ask ourselves, where's the Lord in all this? Do you think the Lord is simply sitting idly by? How will history look back on the 21st century, five centuries from now? I don't mean to pick out one particular sin. I think it's the most obvious in light of the news of the past week, but you think of the mass confusion that exists regarding human identity and marriage. The only crimes today seem to be those committed against personal liberty and consent rather than considering the moral law of God. What do we do when the foundations are overturned and the innocent are hunted down? That is the question that is posed to the messianic king here in this psalm. Do you fight? Do you take up arms? Do you, is it a matter of flight? Do we stick our heads in the sand, pretend that it's not happening? Uh, to borrow the question of Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? And as we see, there are In the psalm, David's counselors say, what is there left to do but to run for the hills? The moral order has been overthrown. David ponders the question and he responds in song. And under the Spirit's guidance, he provides an answer that anchors the church for every age to keep it from sinking amidst the crashing waves of the wickedness of the nations. I'd like us to consider this psalm. Again, it's just a short psalm, but it packs a punch. And I'd like us to consider this passage and let this psalm reorient our perspective as we consider two particular vantage points. First, we'll consider that of the earthly perspective you see here in verses 1 to 3, and then that of the heavenly perspective in verses 4 to 7. Hopefully, as we work our way through this, you'll see that uh, we are uh, looking at the same event excuse me, from two different vantage points, that of earth and that of heaven. Well, David begins here in this opening verse, I think this is the controlling verse to understand the rest of the psalm, in the Lord do I take refuge. I think that immediately tells us that something is wrong. Why is it that David needs a place of refuge? Here's the king of Israel. Here is the messianic heir to the throne. Why is it that he needs a place of refuge? We see here in the following verses that the saints have been assaulted. It's not just David who's being uh, hunted down. It is all the upright in heart who are being hunted down. The wicked have the high ground, so to speak. Verse 3, the foundations, that is to say the pillars of justice in society have been destroyed. The moral order has been overthrown. If you recall last month when we looked and considered Psalm chapter 10, the psalmist decries the fact 
The wicked have laid ambush in the outskirts of villages within the nation, preying upon the weak. But now we see in this psalm, the situation has got exponentially worse. As this is not simply something that is happening out in the sticks. It's not simply thieves and bandits stalking the vulnerable in the outskirts of a small town, although Psalm 10 talks about how wicked those events are as well. No, here we see that the moral foundations of the entirety of society have been overthrown. We're given a heightened picture of this in Daniel chapter 7, where uh, Daniel sees this picture at the, the end of the age, the period leading up to uh, the return of David's greater son, the son of man. We see the kingdom of man acting in this very way. They speak words against the Most High, words of blasphemy. They wear out the saints of the Most High in terms of persecution. And here this kingdom thinks to change the times and the law of the land, legislated perversion. Daniel looks as he is given a vision under inspiration of the Spirit, and it says that the wicked are given the high ground for a time. These things are given into their hand for a season. When we read this, we see that this is a psalm of David writing centuries before Daniel. At least 400 years before Daniel. If I have my math right. I might not have my math right, but it's, it's several centuries. And at some point in David's reign, he experiences just a taste of the very vision that Daniel himself so we are not told when David experiences this. Perhaps, I think, this was during the time in David's life when he had been anointed king, but he had not yet taken Jerusalem. If you recall reading First and Second Samuel, David is a man on the rung. He is a, uh, a king in exile for nearly a decade, waging a war against false claimants to the throne. Perhaps David writes this psalm during this period. He looks at Jerusalem from a distance as the Lord has given me that, but it's occupied by the enemy, by the wicked. Whenever it was, we're not told when, but we are given sufficient data in a way that uh, gives strength and encouragement to the people of God in every day and age. David understands the situation as dire. The wicked have waged war against David and against his men. Verse 3, the upright in heart, that's given in the plural, the wicked hunt them down. It's not simply a war against the messianic king, it's against the people of God. And there is no place, there is no period of respite. The wicked assault the righteous relentlessly. They're shooting arrows in the dark. It's an image in which there is no place, there is no time in which safety occurs. How do you like to go camping in the middle of the night, not wondering if an arrow is going to fly through the tent and kill you? Always having to look on over your shoulder, always having to be on the defensive And yet, despite all of this, David says with great confidence, it is in the Lord that I take refuge. It is to him that I flee. And yet we see here that David has to address the voice of his detractors. 
We don't know who those detractors are, yet it appears to be not just one man, but a plurality of individuals. When you look here at verse, uh, halfway through verse 1, he says, how can you say to my soul? Uh, this is the Charles Williams translation. It's in the plural. How can y'all say to my soul? He is addressing a group of men. How can you, how dare you give me the counsel to flee? How can you say to my soul, flee aimlessly like a bird to her mountain? There are some, apparently, who see the power of the wicked and the plight of the righteous, and they turn to David and they say, run. There's nothing else you can do. Just give up. Calvin's commentary on this psalm, he refers to this as the council of cowards. Here these men look at the man who has been promised an everlasting throne to to look him in the eyes and say, you should just give up. Like an ostrich, just stick your head in the sand. Just forget about Jerusalem. Forget about the promises of God. Save yourself. Isn't that the very question that enemies of Christ assault him with on the cross? If you truly are the Son of God, just save yourself. The wicked have won, it's time to call it quits. Humanly speaking, David has no higher recourse for for action. He is the king. He has no higher court of appeal within the kingdom. The only one he has to turn to is the Lord himself David does not deny the reality, the foundations, the moral order of society has been overturned. In a place, in its place, is a government that legislates iniquity. This isn't just a problem for David, this is a problem for all the upright. Where can the innocent turn to if the courts are now filled by wicked men who take bribes, men who do not act, judges who do not act according to justice, laws that continue to rail against the natural order and the moral law of God? Where can the innocent turn if the state sanctions and approves of their death? What else is there to do? From an earthly perspective, this seems like wise counsel. But as we're going to see, David is much more heavenly minded than we are. And so he redirects our our gaze to consider the things above and to recognize the foolishness of the counsel that is given and directed to him. We see this in verses 4 to 7, right? The wicked may have captured Jerusalem, but the Lord still reigns in Zion. The entirety of the psalm pivots on verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The wicked have taken the capital. The wicked have Jerusalem. The wicked are enacting all manner of unrighteousness. But guess what? The Lord has not fallen off of his throne. None of these things have taken the Lord by surprise. Wickedness may abound on the earth, but there is still a king who reigns from heaven. The Lord is holy. 
Though the wicked may have their way for a time, the Holy One of Israel will not let sin and transgression abide. Of course, the temptation for the people of God is, well, do we have an absentee landlord that we worship? We have a God who has somehow failed to have seen. Uh, Is our God like the prophets of Baal atop of Mount Carmel? Who Elijah turns to the prophets and says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Does, Does the Lord see the wickedness that transpires across the land? Is he deaf to the cries of the innocent? Well, verse 4 tells us that we do not worship some casual observer. For the Lord not only resides in heaven, He also reigns from heaven. Look there at verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. Oh, they see. All right. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord puts the the sons of Adam to the test. The wicked may prosper, but the Lord uses this as a period of testing what is in the hearts of mankind, both righteous and wicked alike. How will you respond? Will you respond by acting righteously? Or pursuing wickedness? His eyes search to see what all men do. Verse 7, the Lord loves. He loves righteous deeds. I think that should hint to us how it is that we should live. What is it the Lord loves? He loves righteousness. He loves those righteous deeds. But as for the man of violence, his soul hates them. This is the Lord's own disposition to those who revel in state-sanctioned wickedness. He hates them. Here their end is seen to be no different than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire, sulfur, brimstone. We are reminded of that situation in Genesis chapter 19, where society had gotten so wicked that there were not even ten righteous inhabitants in that faithless city. So much so that the Lord sends a couple of angels to do a recon operation to deliver the only righteous people that were still left as he rains down fire and sulfur upon the wicked. And Jesus, our Savior himself, points to the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah and says this is a picture of the final judgment that is to come. The intrusion of the end-time wrath of God has broken into and fallen upon Sodom and Gomorrah as a testimony of the justice of God that awaits, awaits for those who continue to pursue wickedness and idolatry and immorality. The Bible has an awful lot to say about hell even if tickled ears do not want to hear it. The Psalms speak of it. Jesus himself says more about hell than anywhere else in the Bible, and Jesus is not inventing a new doctrine. He is deriving these very things from the word he has already spoken through the psalmist. Even as early as the author 
the opening books of the Bible, Genesis 19, we must hear these things and so reorder our affections to love the things that the Lord loves, to hate the things that the Lord hates. The Lord hates violence. You read through the Psalter, uh, he hates violence either uh, done by the slanderer, the verbally abusive, the bandit, the adulterer, the man who divorces his wife without cause, the rapist, the serial killer, and even the abortionist. The Lord has set his face against iniquity. And it is only on account of his free and abounding mercy that any of us can be delivered from the wrath to come. Because when we look and we think, well, I'm not as sinful as these things, we must recognize how deep our sin runs uh, through the heart of every man, woman, and child. When John the Baptist says, flee from the wrath to come, there is only one source of refuge that one can take from the wrath that is to come, and that is by fleeing to the Messiah, the true heir to the Davidic throne, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other place to hide oneself when the day of wrath is unveiled. The Bible describes these acts of violence repeatedly. Christ himself, the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it was said, thou shalt not murder. I say, for those of you who call your brother a fool, an idiot, you are liable to the fires of hell itself as well. So intense, so exhaustive is the wrath of God against sin. He hates sin, and Jesus twice in Luke 13 turns to the crowds and says, unless you repent, you too will perish. Apart from repentance and faith, the wicked have nothing but certain and fiery judgment that awaits. But for the righteous, for those who turn to the Lord as a safe haven, and a refuge for those who have been assaulted by the fiery darts of Satan's regime, deliverance will come. For the Lord is our refuge. He is that safe haven for the righteous. When the wicked assault the church, though they may have the state in their back pocket, so to speak, though they may have the law on their side, we have a more sure foundation because we are citizens of a kingdom whose foundations can never be shaken, so says the preacher of Hebrews. The saints may suffer in darkness as the arrows of the wicked assault and assail, but we have a certain and firm promise that the upright shall behold the face of the Lord. What a thought. I mean, really stop for that and think for a moment the great promise that is extended here. That for those who continue to be assailed by a wicked society with no real recourse for action, with no place to turn, always feeling like you are on the run. The great hope is this, that persevere, because there's coming a day 
when you will behold the beauty of the Lord face to face. Let this be your strong encouragement. This is the great hope expressed all throughout even the Old Testament. This is David's hope. As we'll see in the coming months as we continue to work our way through the psalm. Psalm chapter 16. O Lord, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. This is a psalm language for the resurrection of the dead. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Job chapter 19, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. It's the Christian's great hope. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of trial and assault and persecution, the wicked will have their day. And they have their day today. But for the righteous, there comes a day when we will experience an unending day. When we will finally see our Savior, not simply with the eyes of faith, but there will be coming a day when our faith will give way to sight. We will never be physically apart from our Savior. The wicked come and the wicked go. Tyrants rise and tyrants fall. The grass withers and the flowers fade. It is the word of our God that stands forever. When the foundations have been destroyed, when the pillars of justice in our broader society have been overthrown, what can the righteous do? I think this psalm uh, leads us to two points of action. The first is this, to pray. You see this here in verse 1. It is in the Lord that I take refuge. Just like David, make the Lord your refuge. Pray for deliverance. God is the protector of the defenseless. The question we have before us then is how do we pray for our society? How do we pray for those who have been and are being assaulted by the wicked? Paul is very clear when he writes to Timothy saying uh, that we ought to pray that God would open the eyes of those in authority. The civil magistrate. You remember uh, the day of fasting we had back a few months ago, that this should be a regular routine of the people of God to pray for those in authority because they have been given a particular charge to uphold righteousness. They do not bear the sword in vain, but they are to execute righteousness throughout the land. What do our prayers look like? Do we pray that God would put an end to evil on the earth? Because we should. Do we pray that God would put an end to evil in our land? Because we should. Or do we heed the counsel of fools and simply try to, like an ostrich, stick our head in the sand and pretend that these things do not exist? It doesn't seem like much. 
I think that's the great difficulty about prayer, isn't it? Prayer expresses our own inadequacy. Prayer expresses our own helplessness. Here's David. He's come to the end of his rope. He doesn't know what else to do, and so he prays. In one sense, prayer is not powerful because prayer is an expression of how powerless we really are. And yet, in another sense, prayer is powerful because it is is through the poverty of prayer that the power of Christ is made known because the Lord loves to answer the prayer of the righteous. His ear is open to their cries. So what is it that we are crying out for? What is it that we should pray for? We should pray that the Lord would bless the land that we live in. That is a good thing. I, and I'm not trying to, to, to point to any particular political party or anything like that. I'm not trying to tell you how to vote or who to vote for at least. I'm simply saying this. That the Lord is concerned about the welfare of our nation as he is concerned about the welfare of every nation. He is concerned that those who have been put into authority will act righteously. And so we pray that those very things would take place. Secondly, we see in verse 7, persevere. The Lord loves righteousness. Therefore, I think it is a fair assumption that we should Practice the very things that the Lord loves. Do righteousness. Lawlessness may rule the courts of this earth, but that does not detract us from doing what is right. That should not divert us from doing what is good. The earthly courts may legislate evil, but that does not inhibit us from doing good. You think about the various things that we do, even as a small church here. And um, Since I've used an example at the beginning, I'll use a similar example uh, the, the concern that we have in, in supporting, let's say, that the Alpha Pregnancy Centers, things like that, things that really promote the protection of those who are really the most vulnerable in our land. This is just but one application. I'm not trying to point out one thing. I'm saying, but this is a very real thing that we need to consider as the people of God. So the Lord speaks to the prophet saying this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what He requires of you. What does the Lord require of us? What does He call good? Three things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The state might not care for the innocent, but that does not mean that the church cannot. If ever there is a safe refuge and haven for the vulnerable, it should be the visible manifestation where Christ's kingdom is made known on earth, and that is the church. The Lord, He loves righteousness. He loves showing mercy. And that not that what the Lord's Day is all about? Not just for uh, gathering together for worship and then going home and taking a nap. As much as I love Sunday naps, is worship, rest, and what? Deeds of mercy. How can we show mercy and care for the weak in our society? This requires a lot of self-reflection and and thoughtful uh, uh, ingenuity in terms of a solution. What can be done, either as individuals or as a church? And what uh, is stopping us from doing good? We are to know this, 
That there will come a day that if we persevere faithfully to the end, then we will see our Savior's face. And isn't this the very thing that every one of us longs to hear on that final day? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use your word uh, to show us uh, the righteousness that you love, uh, that we might do righteousness and love righteousness. Uh, deliver your saints uh, from oppression. We pray for the church throughout the earth as so many other churches have been assaulted by um, those in high places. We pray that you would not only protect your church, but you would cause your church to grow, that the gates of hell would not prevail against uh, the growth of Christ in his kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.